0: Hello again and welcome to the latest of our bi-weekly Think Africa Press podcasts, bringing you in-depth discussion, fascinating features and greater context and analysis to standard news coverage of the African continent. Here in the studio today is Editor-in-Chief James Schneider, Nigeria analyst Lagoon Akinloye and I'll be your host Sam Peranti. Now we've got a really great podcast lined up for you this week and we begin by discussing the current state of the relationship between France and the African continent and then take a trip into outer space via Abuja where our Nigeria analyst interviews those in charge of Nigeria's space programme before falling back down to earth with our senior editor James Wan and his in-depth interview with prominent Ugandan gay rights activist Dr Frank Magisha. So stick with us as we take a journey around the continent and the Milky Way and lift off from our studios here in London. So let's begin with France and take a look at the state's current relationship with the African continent. France has hit the headlines over the past year in Africa for the intervention in Mali, its increased military presence in the Central African Republic and in the past week the expansion of French military capabilities across the Sahel. In Niger, negotiations between the government and French state-owned mining company Arriva have stalled with questions raised over the amount of royalties paid by the mining giant. Despite François Hollande's claim that he was setting out to end France-Afrique, France seems as prominent as ever in the region. Now, in the studio today to discuss these issues, we are delighted to welcome Xavier Châtel, spokesperson of the French embassy here in London, and our editor-in-chief, James Schneider. James, over to you.
1: Xavier, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's been a really busy time for France and the African continent, four interventions in less than four years in the Ivory Coast, Libya, Mali, and the Central African Republic. Uh, was France repair, uh, prepared for this kind of scale of engagement?
2: Um, well, James, first, thank you for having me, and uh, it's always a topic which we are so keen to to address. The first thing I'd like to uh, to say is that we have not done these interventions out of a flight of fancy or because we like to do these things. Um, the 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 uh, general framework of our relationships with Africa, I think, has really changed, and the uh, the. Um, the basis of that change is what François Hollande, the French president, set out in his 2012 uh, Dakar speech, saying that basically the, um, the old days of um, different types of relationships uh, were now over and we would move towards partnership and transparency and, and cooperation with, with African countries. The, the four cases that you mentioned uh, of um, military interventions,
1: basically they cover hugely different types of realities. So let's investigate a little bit how this relationship has changed. What are the kind of concrete things that make the relationship now different to how it has been for the last 50 years? Uh,
2: the, the first thing that I'd like to to point out, I think it's really important, is it's not because we change our relationships that all of a sudden we become disinterested with Africa. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. I mean, it wouldn't make mm-hmm. sense. Uh, we have very strong ties with Africa. They're cultural, they're from language, they're from history, um, there is... Um, a l- large number of uh, French citizens in Africa, and and very large numbers of people who are either uh, of African nationalities or of African heritage who live in France, and it's precious, and we will we will certainly want this to to thrive and to continue. And there's and, and this has lots of implications. We will have friendly relationships with Africa. We will develop our trade with Africa. the the Our trade is balanced with Africa. It's uh, like thirty billion euro exports, thirty billion euro imports and, but and the, so this 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 is going to continue so it's maybe the, the first point our relationships will not disappear overnight <clears> because they shouldn't we, we wouldn't want them to and I don't think African countries would want them to either uh, everyone in Africa is is watching football the question is you know <laughs> but the, the
1: question is about the the nature of those relationships I don't think anyone's saying that um France and uh, large parts of Africa can suddenly no longer have any engagement at all for you know the reasons you say it's impossible but the quality of the relationship or the manner in which the relationship takes place um, uh, needs to change or at least um, Francois Hollande has said that it is changing and there's a bit of a tension it it seems and I want to come back to trade and to the question of citizens because those are both really important but um, it seems there's a bit of a tension between um, Hollande presenting things as the new, you know, new France, new French engagement, and then people saying, "Well, no, this is this is just like the old France," or um, between you know, whose interests uh, is French is France operating in in each particular area? So there's international interest where France is basically fulfilling the role of the international community or the Western powers with questions of uh, security or terrorism. Uh, not to say that those aren't also domestic concerns to the countries involved or French uh, national interests as you're saying with citizens which is an international obligation or also looking after economic assets and then with humanitarian concerns on the ground so there appears to be these kind of tensions between um, how things are presented and then how things are perceived and they're perceived often as being a kind of broad extension of what happened beforehand with a nicer better PR you know you're 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 better than the than the predecessor but um you know how has this particularly changed because uh Francois Hollande has been talking about when he had that meeting in December with the 40 heads of state about developing an African rapid reaction task force and basically fitting this into an idea of uh, Pax Africana, the idea that um African states collectively will be able to solve their own security issues but at the moment that isn't really developing and France looks like it needs to operate more and more rather than less and less so are we seeing a kind of um, pay Francais rather than a Pax Africana?
2: You, uh, th- you pack many questions <laughs> in, your, in your question, James. I would, say, I would say a few things to this. The first, if, if you look at the detail, you're going to see that there are actual differences in the way we've been operating. And one key difference, I would say, or well, two key differences that I would like to highlight are African ownership and multilateralism. African ownership, all the interventions that, that I have mentioned, involved the African Union. The reason why we have been able to secure a UN Security Council approval for the operation in Libya uh, while Russia was maybe not uh, overly keen on it is because Russia and others were surprised to see that the African Union requested this uh, operation, just as the Arab League did, did. Same thing in the cases of Mali and same thing in the case of CAR with also the specific role of ECAS, the economic community of Central African states. That's the first really important element, and I think it makes a difference with maybe some of the past practice. The second element is multilateralism. You will have noticed that none of these operations was based, for instance, on merely a bilateral defense agreement with this or that state. Uh, or the FIAT of um, executive authority. It was all based on UN Security Council approval, Uh, in most cases unanimous, just like resolutions uh, 2127 and 2134 on the Central African Republic. So this is really important because it embodies international legitimacy. And mind you, when you have the unanimous consent of the UN Security Council. It means you have on the the same table, both uh, such countries as the the Western three, uh, but also China, Russia, and also by the very constitution of the UN Security Council, at least three African states, usually pretty, pretty influential states.
1: On this um, African ownership point, because it's really important, it has been something that um, uh, France has really stressed. I mean, uh, it's sort of in some ways, led from behind, it's tried to really, you know, stress the African forces in Central African Republic and 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 also in Mali. But um, I mean, when you look at sort of operational capabilities on the ground and which troops are doing what and and who's made the big into you know who's had the big effect is the is the French troops rather than the African troops. And it's important that um, France is broadening out its operation with African forces, but it's still. Um, the French force is still the one that matters the most in, in terms of um, security and in, in terms of the security situation. So how is France, you know, Hollande said he wants to develop this um, African Rapid Reaction Task Force. What's what's been done to do that? Right. First, <clears throat> it's,
2: it, this idea to have African forces mm-hmm. taking over uh, African security is an idea that we've been promoting for mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't depend only on France. I think it's a, it's a broad strategic um, element. It's not only France. I remember already the, the G8 summit at Kananaskis already mm-hmm. provided for uh, support for airlifting African troops, etc. So it's a normal idea. But we really changed tack and we really changed, uh, changed scale. Um, and I'd like to mention maybe um, three things on this maybe 4 actually if you allow. Me. <laughs> <laughs> the first the first one is what we do on the bilateral basis. So we do a number uh, uh, of actions on the bilateral basis. We have announced that we would beef up our uh, our activities in terms of equipping, in terms of logistics, in terms of advice and this is reflected in the way we have reorganized and redeployed our military uh, presence in in Africa. The second thing is what we do on a bilateral basis. And here, in we're in Britain, uh, James, so I'd like to mention the, the role of our excellent British friends. <laughs> they do a lot on Africa, and we do a lot together, and increasingly on, um, I think that there's, there's an increasing understanding that it's about Africa as a whole, and not about this or that area mm-hmm. of traditional interest. And um, and I, I noticed, I, when I was at the bilateral summit between President François Hollande and uh, Prime Minister David Cameron at Bryce Norton, that he mentioned, in the press conference, and Francois Hollande mentioned that Britain would do more in terms of um, supporting and, and uh, equipping um, African forces. So this is very welcome. Now, the third level is, um, is basically what we do at the European Union. I remember the the uh, a few years ago, the, this, uh, the European Union was present only occasionally in a few places. It intervened in, in 2003 in Bunia in the Eastern DRC. It did mm-hmm. a bit of training here and there, particularly in, the in, in, in uh, actually in the DRC again. Um, and now it's present in various places in the continent. It has a Sahel strategy, which is precisely... Uh, meant to beef up uh, capabilities, it intervenes also in Eastern uh, Africa in the Horn uh, with a, um, an operation to beef up um, civilian capabilities. It looks particularly at border uh, management issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think that there's there's a real uh, there's a real um, uh, action there. And the, the the fourth element, and it's probably the most maybe the most promising, is the the the, the forces that the Africans themselves are now trying to organize. And the latest uh, African Union summit, I think, provided some, for some interesting dis- discussions and and decisions on it. The the there's a plan to have this this African rat- rapid response uh, capability, which is uh, in on, on paper, uh, which should be able to deploy 1,500 men at um, a two weeks' notice and um, up to uh, 5,000 um, within 30 days.
1: Um, you were just speaking about. Um multilateralism and then the need to kind of uh broaden out and the eu has started to kind of move a bit in this direction but and you you know said that um britain is said in the in the bilateral thing with with um francois Hollande's that um traditional interests are not what should dictate but at the moment it still looks like um countries have to act in their areas of traditional interest which is obviously problematic for uh, a great number of reasons, you know, a lot of historical reasons. Um, and whilst people are saying that they're going to act, it's been quite a slow process. How is France trying to speed this up? How is France trying to make their their military engagements in the African continent more European rather than French?
2: We are basically um, using actually the uh, the strength of the the European Union and. Its, uh, its experience to do training operations across the continent. We mentioned earlier there's a Sahel strategy. There's operations in the DRC, mm-hmm. operations in uh, Libya, operations in the in uh, in uh, other areas of the, of the continent. Mm-hmm. So that's why, one way of leveraging the EU, and we're very happy with the EU um, taking the lead in the, in those kinds of functions. We also just decided that uh, the uh, EU would deploy 500 troops in C.A.R. to do what used to be the core of the French military engagement, i.e. securing Bangui and the airport.
1: So one of the key bits of um, France's relationship with Africa and that bit which is often most criticised is the, is the economic engagement. So as we you know, heard in the introduction, there's this uh, discussion going on in, in Niger at the moment. And also earlier on, you mentioned the trade balance and you said it's 30 billion euros, 30 billion euros. But um, if you break down that 30 billion euros either way i don't it's probably not that equitable it's probably raw things come out of the african continent and then more finished goods are going in which i mean does mimic the trading relationship that the african continent has with pretty much everywhere else in the world but how i mean are economic relations actually changing at all or are we seeing basically the same pattern of um, structural engagement, structural economic engagement with uh, an increasing multilateralism on the top, on the military level.
2: I, I think we, we shouldn't try to have a sort of a n- a narrative of uh, patronizing relations mm-hmm. with Africa, especially on the on the economic mm-hmm. side. Look, we are struggling to get anywhere between 0. 0.5 and 0.9 percent of growth and the African continent has 5 percent. Oh. We reckon that doubling trade with Africa would generate two hundred thousand jobs in France. So we want trade with Africa. We cannot dictate the economic structure of African countries. We'd be very happy to import um, other things from uh, from Africa. We <clears throat> see from our relationships with other emerging countries, say China, for instance, that the composition of our of our trade with these countries have changed has changed hugely over time and I think it's probably what you would expect in the
1: next years with Africa we'd be very happy with it. And so we end on a modest France. Uh, Thank you very much Xavier Châtel the spokesman from the French Embassy here in London for joining us.
0: From Paris to Pluto now as we shuttle over to our Nigeria analyst Lagoon Akinloye who has been busy interviewing those at the heart of the Nigerian space programme. Lagoon.
3: Thank you very much Sam. I'm looking into Nigeria's controversial space program, which some people have called an expensive ego trip, while others claim it's essential for the development of a modern day Nigeria. The program claims that they have three satellites currently in orbit and are due to send the first Nigerian into space by the year 2018. I caught up with the program, the program spokesperson, Felix Ali, and later its director general, Dr. Seydou Mohammed. Mr. Ali, thank you for joining us. I wanted to start this conversation with a few questions about the supposed benefits of the space programs to the average Nigerian. There have been a lot of speculations about the various benefits that the space program can give the ordinary Nigerian. But what will the money invested by the Nigerian government in this program do for the country?
4: So I'm talking of the election for next year. Right now, we already signed a memorandum of understanding with the National Electoral Commission in Nigeria, which is INEC, to assist them with data in the delimination in, in the of various, uh, you know, the communities in the country. And in the process, it will make them, make it easier for them to, you know, to be able to identify the various police stations in the country. Even in the remotest part of the country, they will be able to identify it. So we already have that collaboration and we are working together to ensure the success of the 2015, which is the next year general election in Nigeria.
3: The media recently highlighted the medical and cultural benefits that the space programme actually provides. Would you mind explaining in a little more detail for me?
4: Also looking at this area of telemedicine. So telemedicine, as you know, is a a way of, uh, you know, uh, giving adequate facilities to people in the remote remote areas. That is, if you have, through telemedicine, you can attend to a patient in the remotest part of Nigeria. We are also working in the area of, you know, agriculture is one of the, you know, uh, major uh, occupation here in Nigeria. So we are also working extensively in the area of agriculture. That is, in, 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 the, in the southwestern part of Nigeria, we have collaboration with some universities in the area of uh, deforestation. So we discover that a lot of forest... In the southwestern part of the country, you know, has been battered. We are trying to revive all this forests. And we carry out a lot of research work with a university. And then we have been able to intervene in several areas, you know, in the area of deforestation. And also, we have been able, in the, in the, in the Niger Delta area, there is this problem of ecosystem, whereby the mangrove has been destroyed. So we are able to. There was a collaboration we had with University of Missouri in the United States of America, and then we have been able to address this problem. And also in the area we have been, we also been able to identify some lands, know which area a particular crop would do better. You know, in some parts of the country, and we make all this information available to farmers. So we make all this information available to farmers from time to time, so that you know. So that if you plant rice in a particular area, yeah, it will will, will do better. If you plant rice in this social area, it will not be better. So, for example, we have provided all this information to the farmers.
3: Satellite mapping has been used by major Western powers with regards to security. Have you used the satellite to look at security risks that are currently going on in northern Nigeria, for instance? A
4: part of our strategy to, to involve, you know, the Nigerian military for them to make use of the space program in order to, to, to enhance their work and also to assist themselves, from day one, we have, we have been working with the military. Like, yeah, yeah, we have been making our, our images available to other African countries. And uh, I want to tell you that uh, the, 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 if, if, if you are very aware, very much aware of the crisis in Mali, images are made available to them, not so to assist them, you know, in, in, in that regard. So I'm gonna be doing our best, doing our very best, you know, to make our images available, you know, to other African countries.
3: According to Mr. Ali, the benefits of the space programs are numerous, but as a communications officer, you would expect that, wouldn't you? Last week, I spoke to director general of the actual space program, Dr. Seydou Mohamed. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Mohammed. Now there seems to be a number of benefits to having actual space program in Nigeria, but how would you respond to criticism that Nigerians have more pressing issues at hand? Some have even called it an ego trip. Why should we send an asteroid into space when 61% of Nigeria's actual population lives in poverty?
5: Uh, let me quickly say, it has always been, been uh, made clear from the beginning that ours is not an ego trip and it is not uh, to compete with others in deep space research. But to apply this technology to solving and enhancing the socioeconomic economic well-being of Nigerians, Uh, Looking at issues of water quality, looking at issues of environmental monitoring, looking at issues of agriculture, provide updating maps and making life easy to monitor and manage our resources.
3: But can you actually tell me how the programme is funded? What is the budget for the programme?
5: The fact that uh, you said uh, more than 61% of Nigerians live below poverty line is the more reason why we need to invest in high technology. To fast track development, the funding of science and technology in Nigeria, along with other others in Africa, at the moment, you know that if you look at in terms of our budget, uh, our budget budget for science and technology, where we are anchored, is still below below zero point one percent, which means if you look at that, uh, you know that uh, the funding for space program is, is quite small compared to other countries.
3: And for you, what is the actual ultimate goal of the space program?
5: The future of Nigerian space program is a situation where you can develop to the extent that you can provide that, uh, that an average Nigerian can sit in the sitting room in the morning taking coffee and can calculate uh, from satellite information the, the soil moisture regimes to know the deficiencies of its farm and from the comfort of his room and punch a computer and supply the necessary water to his farm, and to that extent, guarantee yields that will be enough to create food security in Nigeria, and be able to also, you know, have adequate information that can guide the fishing vessels in Nigeria do uh, get adequate catch that will be enough to raise income and to create social stability in this country.
3: Such a result would indeed benefit the average Nigerian. However. Is this actually the right time? Both Mr Ali and Dr Mohammed were very evasive on the issue of the actual size of the budget. But despite the claims that the funding is small, it is still considerable enough to send satellites into space. They are looking towards 2018 to send the first astronaut into space. That gives me enough time to hit the gym and hit the
1: books about space and the great beyond. So that's your new motivation then?
3: Well, I think
1: I'm almost ready. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is this a good idea, do you reckon?
3: The idea itself, from my personal point of view, is what Nigeria needs, what any country that looks to develop actually needs in terms of progress, in terms of how to actually make a country move forward. Um, Costly, yes. Some might say misguided at this current point, yes. But at the same time, the future holds great things in terms of space science and Nigeria should not be left behind when
1: this happens. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But um the only thing that I found really worrying in, in the responses that, that you got um from the two gentlemen was um the opacity in funding. Like how much is this gonna cost? And they don't really seem like they like they want to say. I mean it could be it could be fantastic. Mm. All of the benefits they say could be really good, it could be very cost effective, but how would we ever know?
3: Um sadly um, we are all aware that um budgeting in Nigeria <laughs> is a very it's a very difficult issue. Um, yet at the same time, my one issue is that they seem to lack some form of transparency in terms of how much they're actually spending on the space programme. Um, that should be up to us to try and go them more into giving us more, more clear figures. Um, I think once the budget is fully released and ratified, it'll, it'll give us a clearer idea on how much they're actually going to spend in that programme.
1: So there you go our Nigerian listeners, Lagoon lawyers, thrown down the mantle, put in your FOI requests and find out how much this is really costing.
0: Thanks for that, Lagoon. The final part of this week's podcast takes a look at gay rights in Uganda, while the country awaits the decision as to whether a controversial anti-gay bill will become law. One of the prominent campaigners against this bill is 2011 Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Award laureate and Executive Director of Sexual Minorities Uganda, Dr. Frank Magisha. Our senior editor, James Wan, caught up with him last week.
6: So from the outside, it can be quite difficult to really get a sense of what the gay rights environment is like in Uganda, because on the one hand, you know, Parliament just passed a new anti-homosexuality bill that would punish so-called aggravated homosexuality with life imprisonment. You hear a lot about discrimination and homophobia, um, and pastors and politicians continue to to make these speeches where they say that homosexuality is evil and un-African. But then at the same time, um, President Museveni hasn't actually signed the bill into law yet. Um, you hear more about LGBT activism, and last year Uganda held its second gay pride march. Um, so, from your perspective, which which direction does it feel like things are moving in?
7: There's a lot going on in Uganda. First of all, I'd like to say that uh, there's so much. There's been so much progress, so much progress in terms of the movement itself, the LGBT movement. There is so much visibility. There are many people who are willing to take the risk right now, and also there are very many people who allies that we we have. We have uh, civil society groups, we have uh, human rights groups that are very much willing to speak on the issue now, unlike before. And then um, we have friends, my own friends, who have evolved on the issue, and now they they are happy to go out with me and appear with me in public, whereas before they wouldn't do it. But on the other hand, we are seeing a trend of uh, homophobia increasing.
6: And why do you think homophobia is increasing? Do you think it's related to the um, anti-homosexuality bill that was that was first tabled by by the MP David Bahati?
7: We did not see a lot of homophobia before the bill was introduced. We had gay people in Uganda, homosexual people, and... In most cases, they were just, you know, uh, referred to with bad names. You know, there were so many, I remember when I was in primary school, there were all sorts of bad names around homosexuality and uh, derogatory names. So that was the biggest fear. And the other biggest fear would be on expulsion from school or suspension, because that, I can agree to it. that any person who was rumored to be homosexual would be expelled or suspended quietly, though. But after 2009, it is changing. I'm seeing relatives turning against their own children because they are said to be homosexuals. I am seeing people who have lived in the same area for 10 years, in the same neighborhood with people, being reported to the police. And my question is, didn't they know them before? My organization has registered lots of cases of violence and discrimination and persecution. But because of the whole fear... And because most of these cases are not reported, you know, I get uh, cases of lesbian girls who have been abused by their own families, but no one is willing to take up this case.
6: So one of the great ironies of homophobia in Uganda is that a lot of people who are against gay rights argue that that homosexuality is un-African and that it's something that the West is somehow trying to impose onto Africa. Um, the reality, of course, is, is that it was colonial governments that criminalized homosexuality. Um, and one of the main drivers of anti-gay sentiment has been the role of American evangelical pastors going over to Uganda and other African countries and, and, and claiming that, you know, Africa is the, is the front line on the war against homosexuality. Um, how important do you think the influence of these American evangelists has been?
7: There has been huge influence. From the American evangelicals, mainly American extreme evangelicals, because before they came to Uganda, and for me I've grown up in Uganda, we, we, ha- we didn 't know words like recruitment. I grew up not hearing anyone saying young people are being recruited into homosexuality. I grew up not hearing anyone saying uh, people are promoting homosexuality. You are either gay, homosexual, and you got the bad names or not. But after the American evangelicals came to Uganda, they indoctrinated this kind of language into Ugandans. That's very hateful. And they told Ugandans, now you have to start saying that homosexuals are recruiting children, homosexuals are promoting homosexuality, homosexuals are going to undermine the African uh, family values and cultures and turn them into Western cultures. Now it's the notion, that's what everyone is saying, because my friends will tell you, I'm very okay with homosexuals as long as they don't touch children. I'm like, do you think they touch children? Really? Oh, but that's what we are being told by the Christians. So the Christian evangelicals have created the problem. They are the problem. They are the problem. They are the worst nightmare that ever happened to us. They have, you know, brought all this information and integrated it into the Ugandans.
6: Now, the anti-homosexuality bill has been passed by Parliament but not signed into law by President Museveni yet. Now, you've fought a lot of gay rights battles in Uganda. What are gay rights activists in Uganda trying to do to
7: stop the bill being signed into law? My organization, Sexual Minorities Uganda Smug, and my colleagues in Uganda, what we're doing right now is getting as much support from uh, local Ugandans, getting support from civil society and human rights organizations, Uh, getting support from um, members of parliament, and getting support from government. So what we're doing right now is also trying to provide a lot of information, helpful information, to the president to show him that homosexuality is African. We've actually just... Uh, launched a report that talks that, that homosexuality is African, it is homophobia that is not African. And the other thing we are doing is try and get as many Ugandan celebrities or Ugandan people who have spoken about other things to also speak about homosexuality and show Ugandans that actually this is an issue that doesn't even need debate. Let people just leave.
6: Okay, and when it comes to the international community, what kind of role do you think they can play? So a couple of years ago, um, some donor countries threatened, they they suggested that if uh, countries pass anti-homosexuality legislation, they might suspend aid. Do you think that kind of um, rhetoric is useful, or do you think uh, the international community should be engaging in, in, in a different kind of way?
7: The international community is watching what is going on in Uganda, Russia, Nigeria, and other places, so even how us as Ugandans we cannot miss the chance to get the international community involved on on the issue, and we are asking the international community not to cut aid to Uganda. you know the activists in my country who are members of smug, who are openly gay, who are working on the forefront, are not very many you know. And the backlash, if aid is cut, first of all we are scapegoated as stopping development. You know, we are scapegoated as undermining you know, the country's infrastructure and all that. And then the other challenge is that the aid actually does not only go to, 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 to heterosexuals, it goes to the very many homosexual Ugandans who are in the closet. Who are not on the forefront? Who are not even in activism? So for us, we do not want uh, the policies of the country affected. We don't want. We don't want to create more victims. We are already victims of the situation. We don't want to create more victims. But what we're saying is that countries can revise the way they give aid to Uganda. They can they redirect it to um, programs. That are going to benefit everyone. They can put conditions and ask Uganda to uphold human rights that Uganda has ratified in inter- some of the international treaties that Uganda has ratified, some of the international standards that come with this aid. But they can also tell Uganda that, you know, Uganda, if you are going to abuse people's rights, you know, some of the budgets would get affected. Have that government to government dialogue. We don't want Western governments to come and tell, you know, our presidents what to do, you know. We want politicians to speak at the same level as politicians, but not to come and tell them, this is what you should do, this is what you should do. That is going to create more problems for us.
6: So your organisation SMUG isn't only involved in advocacy but also in helping LGBT individuals in Uganda in a more personal and and intimate way. Um, So could you just talk me through, you know, what what do you do if, if someone comes to you and they're they're afraid or they're they're having problems with their family, that kind of thing.
7: So when someone comes to us and they have family problems, families are throwing them out. If we can intervene and talk to the family, then we talk to them. If we can find someone helpful in their family, an uncle, an aunt, a brother, who understands their situation and can talk on their behalf, they do. Or we provide them with counselling. And if it's very if it's a bad situation and the person cannot go back, then you try to find them new housing, where to live, where to stay. And you know, if people come to us and say, I was attacked by a mob at my house, mob justice, I can't go back in that area, then that is a very huge emergency. They can't go back, they'll get killed. Some of them you put them up in your house for a few days, a couple of days until you find resources find them a new place to live so our um, emergence is not tailored to a particular system it is more we deal with the case as it comes frank magisha thanks for your time it's been a pleasure
0: a fascinating interview with dr frank magisha there by our senior editor james wan and unfortunately that's all we've got time for this week but keep your eyes peeled for our next pod in two weeks time If you're interested in following up on any of the issues you've heard in today's podcast, then take a look at our further reading on the Think Africa Press podcast page on our website. But from all of us in the studio, goodbye.
2: This episode of the Think Africa Press podcast was recorded at SOAS Studios
1: in London. It is written and presented by James Schneider, James Wan, Lagoon Akenloy and Sam Paranti and produced by Sam Paranti and James Bullock.
2: You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and for more from Think Africa Press, please visit thinkafricapress.com and follow us on Twitter on at Think Feed and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Press.